Welcome to a 2015 Traumatic Brain Injury Consumer Conference podcast, sponsored by Kessler Foundation and Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Keynote speaker, Connie Palmer, LCSW, Clinical and Training Director. Imagine, a center for coping with loss, presents Loss and Grief After Brain Injury. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, September 24, 2015, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System with support from the National Institute of Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, Administration for Community Living, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Washington, D.C., grant number H133A120030030. It's my privilege this morning to introduce our keynote speaker, Constance Palmer. Connie Palmer is a licensed clinical social worker who is an experienced teacher, therapist, and school counselor with more than 30 years of experience working with youth and their families. She is currently the director of training for Imagine, a center for coping with loss in Westfield, New Jersey. She presents seminars on various topics such as grief and loss, resilience, depression and anxiety. Connie is also the aunt, the proud aunt, of a 13-year-old nephew who is living with a brain injury. So please offer a warm welcome for Connie this morning. Thank you. So I like when there is applause at the beginning. Can everyone hear me? Just a little sound check. All right, beautiful. So I also love that these clocks, there are three different times. So I just checked myself and that's the closest one, so I'm gonna go by that. Uh, way to dis disorient me from the beginning. So I'm so excited and grateful and honored to be here this morning and people have already been thanked, but I just wanna thank all the people at Kessler uh, you know, that have um, made this possible for you and for the invitation to be here and all that they did to make all those, de there's so many details, uh, and make it look like it's effortless. So uh, kudos to them for that. So um, I just wanna make sure everyone has a handout. So this is one of those last minute things they did for me. It was, anyway, so make sure you, I just want, cause I'll be referencing that and you also have a way to take notes based on the slides, if that's your thing. Um, so I'm going to take some comments and questions at the end, and um, you know there may be if there's something you're like, okay, that doesn't make sense, you stop me. You know if, if there's something like I'm uh, not explaining well because I don't want to misstate anything or have you taken something um, that hasn't been explained well. So um, I just want to say a lot of times when there's someone up here speaking, people go, oh well, she's like an expert, and I just want to say. I feel this so truly, that I am a lifelong learner about grief, I am a lifelong learner about brain injury, and I'm barely an expert on my own grief and experience in my family with brain injury, let alone that of others. So that's why, especially at the end, I look to you to share information, to share comments, to um, add to this uh, this morning, because you have you know things, together we know so much more than any of us individually. So imagine, just so you're aware of it, provides free year-round grief support for families who've experienced the death of a parent or a child. We also have, uh, I think, one of the only programs in New Jersey that provides uh, what we call our Tender Living Care Program that provides free year-round grief support for families coping with any life-altering illness or injury. So that's an amazing program, uh, just so it's just a good thing for you to know about. But that's not why especially that I'm here today. But um, one of the things that Imagine taught me is that, you know, we think of, when we think of loss and grief and mourning, we think of death. But Imagine very quickly, and the people I encountered in my journeys doing trainings taught me that, that it is not just limited to death. And that there are so many things in life that we encounter that cause us to experience loss and grief and cause us the need to mourn. Brain injury being one of those. Okay, let's see. I'm already having a technology. Let's see. Do I just press the middle button? Just an arrow. I did the arrow. Okay. Yeah, we, I can do it without the 
If you want to look at it, I don't know what, to, or maybe I can just do this. No, that doesn't work either. If he touches it, it makes it works. That's so, it's frozen. That's, and I, I, I probably touched it. My husband says I have that ability. <laughs> how, do you, how do you have that ability to do that? Okay, that's, that's not me, but I like the picture. How do you get back into the presentation from PowerPoint? See the details, and it happens. So um, as they get that together, I just want to tell, oh, we have, we have liftoff. Thank you. So here is my personal connection with, um, with brain injury. This is a picture of my uh, very cute younger brother, David, and my even cuter then two-and-a-half-year-old nephew, Jacob. So on September 9th, 2004, I was um, doing homework with my daughters at the kitchen table right after school had started, and I got a phone call from my sister-in-law screaming, crying in an ambulance, asking me to pray. And in that moment, I fell on my knees. I mean, it was like someone pushed me to my knees. And um, it was, uh, he had fallen out of a third-story window, and, but the, Gratefully, he, he lived, he had amazing care, first at the hospital and then at uh, over a year stay at Franciscan Hospital in Boston, a pediatric rehab, um, and is now uh, 13, and the, the family and he are encountering the challenges of what it is to be an adolescent and have a brain injury. Uh, which is, uh, having raised adolescents, that's plenty. But adding in uh, all of the dynamics that happen uh, with a brain injury, uh, that is part of one of the challenges that, that people are facing. So what that's enabled me to see is see the connection between the initial loss and then the ongoing losses. Because it's not a one and done experience, injuries and illnesses. So I've been a witness to that from New Jersey uh, and on the times when we're together. So I want to talk with you about four words. So the first word is loss. Loss is anything that we lose in life. And I don't know how um, good your memory is at this stage in your life. Mine is uh, less and less. Um, but back when I was about 25, I went to hear a psychologist. His name was Henry Cloud. And I can't remember anything of what he said, but in the Q&A at the end, this woman raised her hand and said, what's the most important thing to teach children? So Henry uh, did this sort of E.F. Hutton thing. He walked back and forth, he rubbed his chin, and everyone's got like their pen like this, you know, ready to write this answer down. And he said this, teach them how to lose. And I still get chills when I think about that answer. Teach them how to lose. And why is that so significant? Because we live in a world that's about winning, about success, about progress. But in my experience as a therapist and in all the things I've encountered in my professional and personal life, the key to a happy, well-lived life is learning how to lose. So, um, but I have to say that in loss, each person is going to experience that in a myriad of different ways, even in the same family. Loss is a very individual experience in terms of how we react. So if we draw that circle bigger beyond death, we see that there's so many losses in life. If we, if we took a poll here, we could keep going for the whole hour that, I've been, that I'm going to talk. You know that we have injuries and illnesses and divorce and job loss. So I want to say that, and this is really key, I think, that loss, the experience of loss, begins at the moment of injury or illness. And it continues in different ways through that process as you face the reality of the impact of whatever that loss, in this case, brain injury. So one of the things that I think is also key, so in the, in the, grief, in the grief biz, they, call, they have a term called secondary losses, but I like to call it ripples, because, you know, it sounds nicer um, and more human. So what we mean by that is not only do you have the initial loss, but there is a ripple effect of those secondary losses, the things that are triggered by that initial loss. 
So in the case of brain injury, all of you here could name some of those ripples. The things that have you know, been caused to happen by that initial um, impact. So it might be things like the change in a relationship, change in your role. If you were previously a spouse and now you're a caregiver, you know, it changes how you relate together and the relationship itself. It changes your dreams. I had a movie of my life and now I have a different movie. It changes finances. It changes the activities that you can do. It changes your employment. It changes your privacy. It changes your ability to feel like you're in control. It challenges and changes your experience of being an independent person. We can keep going. But I, I love this you know, sort of finger painting. Um, and the other thing that I think is true, especially in a family or you know, a, a community, one person's ripples are going to impact another person's ripples. So this is something that hap it doesn't happen individually. It really happens as we are relating together and, um, and how those impact one another and how we experience that. One of the things that doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion, when it comes to what we lose when we have some sort of traumatic event, but one of the key things is a sense of identity. I was this person before, and now a lot of that part of me may be gone. It may be something I may never get back. So who am I now? And in the midst of the grief and the, and the struggles of just surviving and functioning and doing all the things you need to do, especially right in the immediate aftermath, but even in the time afterward, the question is, well, who am I? And coping with the loss of the experience of who I was prior to this injury. Now that's also true for the person who is the caregiver or the person who is, uh, loves the person with the brain injury. They too have had a loss in who they were and, and who they are now. So another word we're going to talk about is grief. So grief, whenever you have loss in life, you're going to have grief. It's just how we're wired as human beings. So I love this. I'm, I'm a, I haunt Google Images. I'm a total thief. <laughs> and this is one of my favorites. So we would like grief to be like that. Don't you like that? There's a nice little starting point, dun, 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 and a nice ending point with a period or an exclamation point. I would like it if my life, and it, it'd be OK, I'll share that with you, if your lives work like that. Unfortunately, my experience is that it looks like that. It looks like a snarly, tangled you know, mess at times, like a roller coaster. And then there's an arrow where it keeps on going. So some losses in life have a very finite ending and an evolution. But traumatic losses and, and losses that impact us greatly, there is going to be ongoing layers of loss at different points in our lives. So you saw me telling that story 11 years after my nephew uh, had that injury. The, the grief is still there for me. I still feel the reality of what that has cost my, my family. So um, I want to say that one, I'm, I'm a quote person. One of my favorite people is Rabbi Earl Grohlman. And he said this. So I'm going to read it slowly. I want it to kind of sink in. Grief is not a disorder. It is not a disease. It is not a sign of weakness. It is an emotional, physical, and spiritual, wait for it, necessity. It is the price we pay for love. So what is that saying? It's saying that grief is normal, that there's nothing wrong with us when we are experiencing grief. Now, wait. There's a little bit more truth to that. Grief is painful. So what do we know as human beings when, when pain is this way, which way do we go? That way. Because you know the hot stove hurts. And we learn to move away from pain. It's part of our kind of human physiological need to survive. Except, I don't know how many of you saw The Fault in Our Stars. Anybody familiar with that? I'm a movie person. So Fault in Our Stars, one of my favorite quotes from that is, pain demands to be felt. 
It will chase you around, and it will be a part of what that big elephant of grief that follows you around until you turn around and name it and acknowledge it. Our pain from grief is normal, necessary, and painful, and very real. So um, when, I, when I thought about, uh, as I began to do these workshops for other types of loss, for mental illness, uh, brain injury, foster care, incarceration, there's so many possible topics, I put together a grief bill of rights. So if you look in your handout on the, on the uh, second and third page, you will see um, a grief bill of rights. So again, I'm confessing my theft. There, if you are going to read a book on grief, one of my favorite people is a man by the name of Alan Walfelt. And Alan, um, I went to see um, him speak at his, he has a little conference place out in Colorado. Highly recommend that, doing that or reading any of his books. But what he's done brilliantly and lovingly and simply is written a grief bill of rights for people who are grieving a loss due to death. And as I read that, as I was first preparing to come and talk about uh, grief and the connection to brain injury, I just rewrote in my own adaptation of what it, the, the rights are of someone who's experienced a brain injury and their right to grieve. And then someone who is caring for or who loves a friend or a family member of someone who is brain injured. And that you have the right to grieve. And just reading those, I think sometimes in and of themselves, it helps us know like this is a necessity. This experience of grief, it's awful, it's hard, all my instincts are to go this way. But to acknowledge that is I think often the, the beginning and the key to learning how to lose. So grief is a lot of things. First of all, it's emotions. So there's lots of emotions we could name. Um, for what we go through in our grief. And the first one we might think of is sadness. You know, we might have a feeling of sadness, but um, often people are angry. They're protesting appropriately. I want this life back. I want it back. There's foot stomping involved, and you know, if we want this back, there's a, and anger is a very appropriate response when we're grieving. We may have fear. Fear of the future, anxiety, how is this all going to work out? We may at times be happy along that course of loss. So we can have all our feelings. And you know, I just want to say that um, you know, at Imagine, we say you can have all your feelings here. But out there in the world, if you talk about a lot of feelings, especially the messy ones like regret and guilt, what do people do? They talk you out of it. No, no, don't feel that way. Don't feel that way about that. Well, wait, I do feel that way. <laughs> I do feel that way. So to be able to have all your feelings and have them be okay and seen as a normal and necessary part of what you are experiencing. The person in your family may be experiencing completely different. And there is no, you know, sometimes grief is a competitive sport. This is the way you're supposed to do it, right? And in reality, it's a very individual process. Grief is also cognitive. I don't know how many of you after, let's say, a death uh, or any kind of loss have had to go back to work. How do your brains, how are they working? Not so well? I mean, you get three days for most, uh, at most places if you've experienced a death, and then you go back to work, and there's a pile of stuff waiting for you to, to start catching up on, and your brain is just not working the same. So I call that grief brain. And again, just to go back into my memories, back when I was a, a college student in Intro to Psychology, my uh, professor came in, and because all college students love pizza, he drew a circle on the board. <clears throat> and then he said, when you have had, this, this is how much psychic energy you have every day. No more, no less, just this amount in this pizza. When you, have go, when you are going through a loss or a trauma, and then he drew a line down the center of the pizza, you are only working on half of the amount of psychic energy. And then if you're trying to pretend like you're fine and not show your grief, you're working on an eighth of a slice. So when you are trying to 
focus, remember things, concentrate, whether it be at work or just the general tasks of life, your brain is going to be impacted by grief, and that's normal. It makes you feel a little crazy, right? After a recent, after a recent death in our family, I remember my husband, you know, we kept having these experiences where he would say something, and I go, I know you just said something, but it didn't get in. <laughs> what, what was that? So that's just part of an, our natural um, way that we respond to grief. So grief is physical. Our bodies feel it. We feel heavy. Literally, our hearts can hurt. We can feel aches and pains that we don't normally feel. So grief is physical. It's also spiritual, or in, it has an impact on how we create meaning in our lives. Before that event, we thought this way about the world. We thought this way about our belief system, about God. So I, you know, I'm a good person, and we have, may have a belief that then good things should happen to me. So it may, it may really challenge or, or strengthen our belief system. But it, it may change it. Grief impacts our relationships, how we relate to one another, and then realizing that there are some people who we may have had as friends or in our lives, even family, before that event or incident or injury, and then after that, they're not in our lives anymore. They don't know how. They don't know how to be with us in our grief. It affects our behavior. So one of the things I talk a lot about at Imagine, especially when I go out to teach about grief in the schools, is that I really want people to, to begin to think about, often I don't have words, I don't know about you all, but after, when you're going through grief, sometimes words are, the, are hard, like, how am I feeling? Oh, I don't know. I'm just trying to get through the day, all right? So often what you'll see is behavior. What would happen if we didn't just listen to what people said, but we listened to their behavior? Because their behavior is information about what's going on inside of them that they may not know how to express. If they're picking fights, well, maybe they're angry. What's going on? Ah, anger might make sense after what this person has gone through. So our next word is mourning. So mourning is when the grief that's inside of me, because you know we don't wear t-shirts if you're grieving. I kind of like this idea. If we all just had a t-shirt when you're grieving and we all just put it on and then when you walk through your life, you're, you could just high five people, go, yeah, me too, right? And we wouldn't feel so alone because guess what? Everyone would be wearing one. Everyone is either grieving a past loss or coping with a present loss. It's the reality of life as a human being. It's not the only reality, but it's a reality. So mourning is when that grief, when that experience of all that I just described, that tangle, that mess over there that we had on the previous slide, gets talked about, gets expressed. So this can happen in a lot of ways. It can happen through talking. It can happen through telling your story or protesting that loss, perhaps. It can happen through crying. You can mourn without crying. It can happen through writing in a journal or writing your story or in art. There are many ways to express that internal experience. But um, except there's a problem. What, what do we need to be able to mourn? Sounds right. She's saying, OK, this is the next step, mourning, right. But what we need is what? We need safety. Mourning. Letting people see the vulnerable, griefy part of you is a risky thing in our world. At least it is for me. I don't know what, if that's similar in your world, but it's often a very vulnerable, risky thing because when we express that, we don't always find people who, with whom it feels safe to talk about those things and to really let people know how that is. People who will let us have all of our feelings. But when we mourn, and this is why I love this picture, some light can get into that grief. It's like there's a breaking of the clouds and some light and some, you know, often, I don't know about you, but you can feel so alone in your loss, so alone. And when we express it, we begin, we begin to be able to feel less alone. 
One of the th other things that we say in Imagine is that people need to feel felt. So not only do we just need people where it's safe, but we need people who are like, I get it. And where they really hear and, and, and reflect back to us, this is what you're telling me. Yeah, that's what this experience is like. So I want you to think about if it's hard in our world you know, to be able to express that internal experience, what happens when people don't mourn? What happens when people keep that grief private and repressed and held in? You all could probably answer that question pretty well. We get depressed. If you want to get depressed, suppress something that's normal and natural, even if it's painful. Try to get rid of it and you'll get depressed. It's, a, just a, it's like therapy 101. If someone is holding in something, not talking about it, not letting it be witnessed and comforted, they will get depressed. People can even become suicidal if they are holding in so much trauma and loss and grief. People can become anxious when they are holding all that in because think about it, it's a lot to hold in. People get sick. Our, the icons of my era in the 60s you know, um, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy and Martin Luther King's Coretta Scott King, they were, you know, stoic, right? They didn't show any, any grief. They didn't mourn. I'm sure they were grieving. But the consequences for both of them in the end of their lives was that it made them ill, physically ill. There were long-term consequences for that style of coping, uh, just all on your own inside of you without being able to express that and mourn it. It causes people to be aggressive. How many of you have heard the expression, hurt people hurt people, right? So if I bottle in all of this grief, it can make me lash out at people. It can make me pick fights with people and cause a lot of hurt. It can cause me to be isolated. So there's a lot of consequences if we uh, keep that grief inside of us, and often long-lasting consequences. And what we don't develop if we don't mourn, we don't develop resilience. So resilience is basically the fruit or the consequence of having learned how to lose, having learned how to cope when hard and bad things happen to us. That is what develops resilience. So when, when, I, when I'm speaking and I'm talking with people and I say, okay, so what's resilience? People, this is a smart crowd, you probably all are thinking, oh, it means to bounce back. How many of you knew that? Right? You bounce back. Except when you're thinking about a loss, like a brain injury, so I was here, I had the brain injury, do I bounce back to where I was? No. There's, uh, the, some of who I was before the brain injury is still there, but I don't bounce back exactly to where I was, so that isn't quite right. And often people will say to me, it's about being strong, right? Resilience is about being strong and getting through stuff. You know, kind of keep calm and carry on. But actually what I've found is that resilience is found in your ability to be weak. Your ability to be vulnerable. Your ability to experience the powerlessness of grief and to talk about those things and to be able to mourn because mourning is a very vulnerable thing to do. So resilience is, is, can be found, this, we all have the seeds of resilience in us, but they don't grow if we do not find ways of letting people see those parts of us that are not strong, but actually are weak. So um, when, I, when I have done several of these uh, talks, I created what I call a resiliency toolbox. This, this is on page four in your handouts. Um, and I'm not going to read them because I hate people who read their PowerPoint slides. It just bugs me because I can read. So I'm not going to read it to you. But I, I want to highlight two of them. The two key ones are number two. So having those, I, being able to identify and express your feelings. That is the key. That is sort of that basis of being able to mourn, to be able to express what's inside of you. And the other one is number six. So having a sense of your own power. So you're walking, imagine, and it's just not hard for you to do, you're walking through your life and you have, or you, a family member has this brain injury. 
So your experience of I'm in charge of my life, what happens to that? Gets shattered a little bit. So to develop resilience is to come back to that question again. What, it's kind of a, like a serenity prayer question. What, am I, what can I control about my life now? Which may be a completely different question than what can I control in my life prior to the brain injury? What can I control now? And also the wisdom to know what can't I control? This is a question not just for the person with a brain injury, but for the people who care for the person with the brain injury. So often, um, we will, uh, we caregivers, and I'm one, because we feel we, we're naturally compassionate people, we're not bad, but we tend to overfunction around people's pain. And how does that impact that ability to feel like you're in control? Not so well. Because if I overfunction, the other person's inclination is going to be to underfunction. So to allow people that question, and to, when we are around people who have gone through a traumatic loss, whether it's death, whether it's brain injury, to let them be in that question and to give them as much power as we can in that process. So I have a visual that I think is really helpful. <clears throat> so I don't know how many of you saw uh, the movie Forrest Gump. Love that movie. Okay, so life is like a box of, and you're all like, where's the chocolate? I didn't bring chocolate, sorry. I brought dominoes. So I want you to picture that this is my life, okay? Look how nice, it's pretty well organized, kind of like me, maybe a, a little bit of disarray there, but that's how I like my life. So if I look at this, I can tell you some of the parts of my life. So these are my feelings. These are some of the things I think are important. These are the people in my life, let's say my friends, my family, my husband, my daughter. Here's what I do for a living. Here are uh, my spiritual beliefs. So this is my life, and it's exactly how I want it until there's a moment where my life gets turned upside down. Everyone in this room has had probably more than one of those moments. The incident of the brain injury being one. So my life, my sense of who I am, is now all on the floor. And I'm in shock. Because I used to be like this, and all nice and kind of, whew, I didn't even have to think about it. But now, look at it. And my first reaction is just to be, you know, stand with this. But you all are very well behaved, because what, what do people usually do when, when this happens? They want to, they people like launch out of their seats and, and want to help me clean it up, which is true in real life. And, and that's well-intentioned because they see how much pain I'm in. They want to help me with the parts of my life. Here, Connie, put this part back in. But whose job is it to pick up these dominoes? My job. It's my life. And well-intentioned family members and caregivers and professionals, you know, it's been this long. Come on, get that domino back in the box. I don't know how that domino is going to go back in. It's not going to go back in the same way. So um, one of my favorite books I read about brain injury, Over My Head, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Claudia Osborne, you know, she's a doctor. And she really tries hard to go back to the same practice of medicine that she did before her brain injury. But that professional domino, it never went back in. It went in differently. But it took, I, my memory is from the book, a couple years for her to come to the reality that that was not going to go back in the way that it was. So there are friends, as I mentioned before, who either are going to flee the scene, because how is it to be someone around this? How is that for you? It's hard makes you feel powerless, makes you feel the pain that I'm experiencing. You know, it's like, it's like I've got vulnerability cooties and you don't want them. 
So to be around someone, whether it's a death, whether it's a brain injury, or whatever it is, it's a very hard thing. And many people just don't have it, or it puts them in too much in touch with parts of themselves that are just too difficult. I mean, we can get really angry at those people, but they just don't have the bandwidth. There are times in my life when I didn't have that bandwidth, for sure. And it's an ever-growing, hopefully, bandwidth. So step by step, I'm going to be picking up these dominoes. How long should I get? Is there a time limit? Yeah? Yeah, that's it. Come on now, and let's get that whipped into shape. So there are, there are some things that, that do make their, you know, for uh, some hurrying up about that. But it may, there's still, even years after an injury, there may be some dominoes that are still on the floor. And there may be some that are never going to go back in. And what is that? That's a loss. Because I live my life with those dominoes that are still on the floor. So this exercise, I have to say, it, it, every time I do it, um, reminds me of the first time I did it. The woman uh, who showed it to me, her daughter had died from suicide. So no matter what the loss is, this is part of our experience as human beings, as we face the reality of the loss. So what do I need? What do I need in my life in the aftermath of this? What do I need from all of you? I need people who are not going to rush me. I need people who are going to let me have all my feelings. I need people who are not going to should me. Who likes to be should here? No one likes to be should on, I say. So, you know, we, we, don't, we want people who are just going to be witnesses, who are going to be present. Now, there may be some very practical things I may need help on. That's about 10% of it. 90% of it. The emotional part, the grief part, is just being present with me. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Um, so one of the things I want to say is that there's something that gets in the way of that for me and for all of you who are those companions, and it's this. So when I started working at Imagine, when families come in, they um, are, we tell them about the program, and then we offer them a chance to um, you know, tell us what, what, what brought them here. And they can come a week after the death uh, or 10 years after the death. And when the you know, teens on up would tell about that, some of them would cry. And when those people cried, what do you think were the first words out of their mouth? I heard, yeah, you all know it. Who knew? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I heard it over and over, and I'm like, what? Wait, you're sorry because you're crying because your beloved husband died, or your dad died, or your child died. I don't get the apology, because what, what do we apologize for, right? When we do something wrong, when we injure someone, what's the injury? You haven't injured me. You're t it's hard to stand with your grief. It's hard to be present to it, but there's nothing to apologize for. But that's what we do. And so when I heard it over and over again, so I'm a th I was a therapist for many years, I'm like, that's shame. So Google, 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 not much. There's not much out there, and not a whole lot on shame and brain injury. In your resources on the last page, there's a little bit. And I would love for somebody to, to get their doctorate on, write their dissertation on that. But there's a, an incredible connection between loss, grief, mourning and what gets in the way of me being able to mourn and what gets in the way of you all being companions to me. So I want you to, it's, it's, and I love this image because shame is like a brick wall. It, it blocks us, it prevents us. So if you can turn to that uh, page five. <clears throat> you can tell the printers at Kessler have had a workout, <laughs> right, by uh, the amount of dye here. So I just want you to picture this with me. So here you are walking through life, and the water level is here. You're an iceberg. You're floating, you know, at the water level, and just that top part of you is showing. So look what's in that top part. That top part of you is your public self. It's who you are when you go to work, and it's who you are out in the community. You're showing your strength. 
the places where you're competent and capable. But life, in the form of brain injury on the right, and other types of losses, because you know losses don't come one at a time, they're not very polite, <laughs> right? Lower that water level and expose what? Expose that bottom part of the iceberg of us, that bottom part of ourselves. That, in fact, there's not a fig leaf big enough to cover that part up. But we try, right? It exposes us. It makes us feel vulnerable. And people are, you know, looking at us, right? So the experience of that water level going down, where we're feeling, where our vulnerability, our powerlessness, the things we can't control, all of those things, our weakness, our messy feelings, they're all there for people to see. As human beings, when that happens to us, almost all of us, except for sociopaths, are going to experience some degree of shame. Now, what's shame? Some of you may be more or less familiar with it. By the way, this is, a lot of this is from not only my own research, but from Brene Brown. Any of you know her? No one. All right, treat yourself. It's in the resource packet. She has an ama some amazing books, and it's, it's down there on the bottom. Brene Brown has two TED Talks, one on vulnerability and one on shame. Highly recommend it. If all of us watched those, it would change our planet. At any rate, so shame is that experience we have when we want to hide, when a part of us or our whole being feels like people won't want to see that part of me. They won't like that part of me. That part of me makes other people uncomfortable, so I'm going to hide it. I'm going to try to get rid of it, which is where we get depression. That experience of shame, it's an excruciating human experience, but no one talks about it. And it grows in secrecy and silence. So that experience of shame is not like guilt, like I did something bad because then I can apologize. Shame is I am bad, or some part of me is bad. So when you have gone through a brain injury, there is a whole new list of vulnerabilities. If you're a companion and a caregiver and someone who loves someone with a, with a brain injury, there's a whole new list of things that make you feel vulnerable and unsure and powerless. So this, this bottom part of the iceberg actually grows after there's that kind of a trauma. So what do we as human beings do when we experience shame, when we experience that bottom part of the iceberg? We do what Brene calls armoring up. Therapists call it defenses. Look over there on the right-hand side of the bottom part of the iceberg, and you see a list of defenses. Now, be careful, because most of you are going to find other people first. <laughs> I know you, because you're like me. So look for yourself first. Right? There's three main types. The first type is aggression, the fight response. So if I'm angry and I am picking fights with people, if I'm acting very sarcastic, I'm, I'm putting other people down, what aren't people going to see? They're not going to see that bottom part of myself, that bottom part of the iceberg. It's great camouflage, right? Because frankly, they may not even want to be around me. The second one is the flight response, where I pull away from relationships. I isolate myself. Or I do the, everyone, everyone asks me how I am, I'm fine. Now, there are people who it's right to say I'm fine with. Have you ever heard of um, an AA expression, don't go to the hardware store for bread? Okay, so there are some people who you go to with that bottom part of the iceberg and they're going to hit you with a hammer. So when they ask you how you are, I'm fine. That's the right answer. But people who might be able to be present to that part of you, if you say I'm fine, you're jipping yourself. You're jipping yourself with the possibility of some compassion and some support. So that isolation can look like substance abuse. It can look like that finding ways to um, self-soothe ourselves. It can look like cracking jokes or keeping busy. It's moving away from that experience of ourselves. And then the third one, this is who I was mainly as, as a child, because we learn these as children. We learn these, some of these ways, you can, if you look back at you're like, yeah, I've been doing that for a really long time. And it's, it's served me well. And these defenses do serve us well. And so that bottom one where we're, we're people-pleasing or moving toward, that part of us is if, I'm, if you have a need, I'm going to meet it. And I'm going to know your need before you even know you have it. 
I'm going to take such good care of you. What part of me aren't you going to see? All three of these defenses or armor are very effective. I, might pr I am probably going to be unconscious of even doing it. These are my autopilot. Look up here at the top left. There's a beautiful sun up there. So up there we've got love and empathy and support and companioning. What happens to these defenses when this part of us below the iceberg gets connected to love and empathy and belonging and compassion? What happens to them, do you think? They go away. A lot of times therapists focus on this. Let's fix this. Uh-uh. These things are what you are doing to survive and cope the best you can. But there's also some downsides to these, right? They mess relationships, cause a lot of emotional and mental health problems. But when we get connected to these things, we are going to be able to let some of those things go. I taught this at a, at a local high school, and this really wise senior raised her hand and said, Mrs. Palmer, aren't we both parts of the iceberg? I'm like, yeah. You knew that before. I, I didn't know that when I was 18. We are both. But most of us spend our lives either unconscious of or trying to keep people from seeing that part of us. That is what learning how to lose is. Mourning, being able to mourn and connect those grieving parts to that love, compassion, and empathy, that is what it means to take care of yourself. That is one of the most vital acts of self-care in my mind. So, if we can get shame out of the way, we can get to companioning. So I'm going to need that microphone in a second. Someone is going to pass me a handheld. So if you turn to page six um, in your handouts. So again, Alan Walfelt, who is awesome, um, has, has put together this list of the differences between companioning and treatment. So compa companioning, we're going to get to in a second, but treatment, this is, Kessler is good at treatment. They're amazing at treatment. If I have a broken bone or an injured brain, I want treatment. I want the smartest people to help me figure out how to fix something that's broken. I want the best team. However, if I'm grieving, is there anything to fix? There's nothing to fix. There's things to be felt. There are things to be experienced, but there's no problem. There's just pain. So the treatment model is great. I love a, a good problem solver. I married one. Very grateful for that. However, I also want people in my life who can be companions, who can be the people who are going to stand around me as I experience that iceberg. So what I'm going to have us do, just because I think uh, we, some of us are auditory and some of us are um, you know, more visual learners, I'm just going to pass this microphone. And I'm going to ask you to read the dark print. And then if you would read the red print, if you want to pass, if you're not a microphone people, just pass it on to the next person, OK? We're just going to read this around until we get to the end. And then we're going to open it up to some questions. Would you be willing? No. OK, that's OK. Would you be willing to read right there the dark print, starting with companioning? Companioning is? honoring the spirit. It's not about focusing on the intellect. Companioning is about curiosity. It is not about expertise. Companion is about learning from others. It's not about teaching other them. Companioning is about being still. Did I skip one? Companioning is about walking alongside. It is not about leading. Companion, companioning is about being still. It is not about frantic movement forward. Companioning is about discovering the gifts of sacred silence. Companion, compa oh. If it is not about feeling every painful 
moment with words. Companioning is all about listening with the heart. It's not about analyzing with the head. Companioning is about bearing witness to the struggles of others. It is not about directing those struggles. It's Companioning is about being present to another person's pain. It is not it is not about taking away with the pain. Companioning is about respecting disorder and confusion. It is not about imposing order and logic. Companioning Companioning is about going to the wilderness of the soul with another human being. It is not about thinking you're responsible for finding the way out. So when I first read this, it changed me. It changed how I was able to be present to people in my own life. And I really believe that this is the response that we need to practice in our lives around people who are going through any kind of, kind of loss. To be a companion is to be all of these things. So I want to just uh, finish with um, this one last slide, two last slides. So my life now, it's not so much about the new normal. I know that's kind of a key phrase. But it's about that new part of me and the old part of me, this new identity. And Claudia Osborne said this. I'll let you read it. But she was, she was a workaholic. She didn't have a lot of fun. She didn't see much of her family or her loved ones. But then she began to discover painting and fun and doing creative things that she never would have before the brain injury. And she learned to use a different way of measuring herself than just who she was before the brain injury versus after, but a both and, not an either or. And I'm gonna close with, um, after I went to the BIANJ conference, a woman named Lori sent me this email. She said this, you touched my heart. You woke up my feelings that I've held down deep since the incident, as I like to call it. I didn't realize I needed to grieve, I just didn't know I was supposed to be grieving now. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my grieving heart. I feel like I can finally start to live again. So I want to open it up to questions and any comments. I talk too much, I only left you five minutes. But so what, what things do you want to share or questions you want to ask the group or feedback or anything? <laughs> well, after we're done, I absolutely invite people to come forward and to take one of these as a memory of two things. One, the loss, and also the experience of being a companion in the midst of a world where there's dominoes all over the ground. Anyone else? Yes. Um, my name is Dennis Balance. Not Dennis Balance, as I learned growing up. <laughs> because my, my first name is not spelt with two N's, and my second name is not spelt with one L. All right. So, um, I, I was just thinking about um, anxiety and depression always occur together to some different degrees of each. And I guess I, I just added to that grief also. You know, it, it, they all, they all are connected. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree with you. 
And when we don't experience the grief and, and express it, mourn it, to that degree, our anxiety and our depression increases, our suffering increases. I've, I've had uh, an experience. My TBI occurred three months prior to them coming out with a definition of traumatic brain injury. Back September 13th, a Saturday, 1980. Mm. And um, I was 19. I was two weeks into my third year of studying chemistry in St. Peter's College, Jersey City, and doing well. And I've been able to do the, the bulk of my important education after the TBI. As a matter of fact, I, I started out going to um, vocational school for medical assistant, and I learned the medical language which was amazing. I had like a 93 average. And not, not good with phlebotomy, though. You gotta have the right touch for that. Um, I went on to uh, get a health science associate's degree from the county college, Middlesex County, and transferred to Rutgers where I got a psychology degree. Um, after that, I decided to go back to um, Middlesex College and take advantage of a $4,000 Obama giveaway. And uh, I got certified in billing and coding, medical administrative assistant. So I'm doing the same that, that I've been doing since prior to the accident. Mm -hmm. um, my head is still at 19. I look at young women. I, I don't look at people my age. It's not. Hmm. I don't know, I, I was gonna say not normal, but all right. Um, you shared your story. They're, they're telling me, yeah. You shared your story, thank you. And I think there's a lot of resilience as I listen to that story. The point, the point was about grief being connected with yeah, absolutely. depression. Anxiety. You're so right. Do we have time for one more? My injury occurred four and a half years ago, and I don't see an end to a timeline of when I recover because through the course of that time, there's been many things that come up. And as I'm having patience to try to find where I'm gonna be next, those small occurrences constantly redirect the line that I'm on. Mm. Some of the hopes of what I want to do, I may get there, I may never get there. It's just having the patience to wait and see where it's gonna go. And being in the moment, mm -hmm. being in that moment. Thank you. Better than I could say it, hello. Do we have one more or are we? I guess, well, I don't know that. Thank you. It's my gift. Now, my point is this, that uh, I'm listening to your words, and you know, over here on the bottom of the uh, iceberg, one of them says about fine. Now, now I'm fine because it's been 11 years. Now, I walk around with an attitude, I'm fine, but leave me alone, I'm all right. Now, uh, and there's a lot of subconscious level in our brains, how we act. And now you bring out a lot of information to my head and to other people here. And now you're going to sort of take it out of my subconscious level to a more conscious moment, which may make me feel more freaking messed up. So I know. say, well, Jesus, I got so much grief going on, what's going on. And now, what are, what are you feeling about that? Huh. You're probably feeling like, why did they ask her? <laughs> <laughs> Yay, what a great way to start off the so, so, you know, I f that, that's why what that young girl said is so true. We're both. It's only, we, we have lo loss as a constant in our lives. The, the thing, and that's, that's a pain that kind of goes like this. The suffering is when we're not talking about it. When we're living with this elephant following us around and, and stepping all over us and, and injuring us. If when we're in touch with those losses and we're kind of like what you were saying, yep, look, 
I may not have that. I'm not sure if I'm going to get that. I may feel some loss. To the degree we can live in both that whole part of us, not just the grief and the loss and the vulnerability, but also the successes and the strengths and the capabilities, I think that balances out, oh, I have to feel horrible and bad. There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of things that are to be celebrated and are positive. But if we're neglecting looking at some of those things that are much harder, they are like a wall that we keep running into over and over again. That's my sense. I don't know how that, if that helps. You can still be like <laughs> No, you can. You're certainly welcome to. Because I, I totally agree with you that you know, my goal is not like, oh, please go home and feel bad. My goal, my, my goal is, my wish is for you to just feel the reality of your experience and to, and to talk to others and to share that experience. You've got a whole day full of people who would go, who would go yeah, me too. So I'm going to cut myself off. And thank you very much. If anyone would like a domino, you can come on up and grab one and take one with you.